Hello there, it's Oliver Callan here again and welcome to our weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the last week. On Monday's show, with all the talk of AI recently, Declan Foster was in with us to discuss his book which addresses the concerns and fears surrounding the rise of technology. As comedian Emma Doran hits the road again, she joined us in studio. She's touring in September. Mad Isn't It is the name of that tour. Sinead Kennedy had a life-changing moment in her early 30s. Her book Life is a Cycle focuses on turning her life around. Joe Falvey knew Sinead O'Connor before she became an international superstar. She credited her former teacher with making a difference in her life and he joined us from Waterford after the sad news of her passing made world headlines. And on Friday's show, nearly a century after its original opening, the beloved Crowley's Music Centre relaunched in Cork City. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Now, the rise of the machines has put the fear of Skynet into all of us since the launch of ChatGPT and the sudden mainstreaming of the alarm around artificial intelligence, bots, automation, all of that. How can we put humans back into the heart of technology? That's the objective of our guest this morning, Declan Foster. Good morning to you, Declan Foster. Good morning. You've co-written a book about this and hopefully you'll help us unpack, debunk and humanise this complex world of technology that now swirls around us. Let's begin. What's your area of expertise? I've been working in uh, project management for about 20 or 25 years now yeah. right around the world actually managing large technology projects inside um, big companies is uh, it inside consulting firms and, okay. and, and for myself as well I yeah. nearly ask you what a consulting firm is this exactly <laughs> sometimes the summer, but they basically are sometimes outsourced by companies to do the stuff that that's they right do. some of the big four consulting firms you know so I've worked for PwC for example uh-huh. in, in Australia in Australia? Yes, yeah. I, was, I lived in Australia for about 18 years. Oh, really? So I'm one of those folks who've lived abroad and then returned home. We're going to be looking for that in your accent now for the whole interview. That, well, we'll see. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so um, where did you get the interest then to write this book? Humanology. Humology. Yes, humology. What is humology? Is that something so, you've made up? Yeah, well, we think it's the intersection of uh, humanity mm-hmm. and technology. So I've been, as I said, I've worked in project management, but I guess about... Ten years ago, I got the opportunity to work in projects where we looked at organisational change management. So we were actually looking at the people impacts of these big technology projects, you know, so often that they're over, they're overlooked, you know, yeah. that it's people that get impacted. Um, and that sort of uh, got me an interest in how people are responding to technology and also started to become aware that not only is, you know, change fatigue and frustration with technology issues within organisations it's actually a societal issue you now as well. We're all kind of feeling that. We're all kind of afraid of we technology, are, aren't we? We are. We are afraid, you know. And I think there's, there's, uh, we need to be informed about, you know, what technology is. And we'll chat maybe about AI, you know, yes. throughout the interview as well. But we need to stay informed, but not not to be alarmed. So well, let's start there because that's that is the buzzword: AI, artificial intelligence. Should we be scared? No, I don't think so. I think yeah. um, we, we need to stay on top of that. We need to make sure that uh, we have appropriate legislation and also to make sure that everybody's informed about what it is. Mm. You know, part of the work that I do at, at the moment is uh, demystifying artificial intelligence for business professionals and executives. Very good. 
And what, how do you do that? So one of the things, for example, I say is, you know, we, we were all looking at ChatGPT at the moment and we're all having a bit of a play with that. So it's, under, it's you know, remember that that's just a piece of machine learning. And all machine learning is, is just maths and statistics on steroids. It's not magic, you know. It's, you know it's <laughs> it doesn't do anything on its own. It doesn't, it doesn't. No. Not yet now, you know, maybe when we get to, you know, artificial general intelligence, maybe, you know, by, possibly by the year in the 2040s, maybe we need to be concerned then. But at the moment, you know, it doesn't. And it's just there really to, I think when it's used properly, it's just there to augment humans and not replace them, you know. You see, there you, you come into the, the world of technology because when anything is used properly, it's fine. And data, which is a thing I don't think that's kind of widely enough understood. Data is more, uh, has a greater value than oil already and has for quite some time, hasn't it? That's it. Well, they say data is the new oil, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. I say data, you say data. <laughs> I say data, you say data. Uh, that's definitely the Australian. I think, it could be. Well, well, with the American terms, the American pronunciations come in. But the, the data is just basically a map of everything we do online, isn't it? It's just a store of information of, uh, of everything It is, absolutely. And I mean, that's one, one of the things that the problems is is that these big data companies, you know, like uh, the Googles and the Facebooks, they're hoovering all that data up and, you know, and they're, and they're using it. And that's how they train their machine learning, you know, algorithms, you know, with all of our data, essentially. Yeah, well, we willingly give it to them. Well, we do. But, yeah. and, and the trade-off is, you know, look after it uh, by, by the law and so on. And that's when it goes wrong. And that's what I, I mean, that technology is fine when it works and it uh, doesn't, isn't used against it. But sometimes it is and has been in elections and so on, hasn't it? Absolutely. So you can think about the, uh, the famous case where, with uh, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, yes. where what they, Cambridge Analytica, were given access to thousands, uh, tens of thousands of uh, accounts from Facebook and they're able to use that data then that actually uh, really hyper-personalised political yeah. advertising and they did that in the 26 uh, US election. And Facebook were famously fined That's, yes. for the mishandling of the data there, weren't they? Absolutely, yes. I think yeah. it's five billion, but it, 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 I think the day they were fined five billion, their value rose 10 billion because their, their business model hadn't been affected by the fine. Exactly. So they basically yes. made money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg famously said, you know, uh, we, we decided what the social norms would be and then we just went for it. So, you know, really? a lot, a lot to themselves sometimes. So there's data being misused against us. So you're, so artificial intelligence is going to be grand if it's used for good. How does it get used for bad and how quickly could that happen? Uh, well, we can see examples like we talked about Cambridge Analytica as well. And we can start to see, for example, uh, with generative AI is the latest piece of AI that we're looking at. And that's the chat GPT. Yeah. It's also the, uh, the, the, uh, the tools you can use to create images, you know, so you can use a text to image software like uh, mid journey or stable diffusion. And you can see that that could actually create an awful lot of problems. So there were, there are certainly concerned in the US about how deep fakes or fake images can actually be created. And it might be used in, you know, perhaps during the presidential elections, which I think are next year in the US, they're concerned about that. You and know? that means we lose our, our faith in what we perceive to be real, which seems like a mad statement. To say, it is. It? You, you don't know if you're looking at it as real or not. But interesting, we talk about that. Um, it actually just, and this is the area of AI, things have changed, you know, every week, sometimes on a daily basis. So yeah. over the weekend, in fact, some of the uh, the leading lights in AI met with uh, Joe Biden and they volunteered to put in what they're calling a digital watermark now in these images. Okay. So now you're able to see, they can tell, like embedded in the code, 
if this AI really? image is, you know, or if this image is AI generated or, is, you know, is it fake or is it a real image, you know? Is that something that they'd have to do voluntarily when they're creating the image, though? Well, that's, well, they, they, that's what they've said. They've signed okay. up that they would actually do that. So, and I, and I guess it's, imbe- I don't know how it would work exactly, but I am mm. assume it's going to be embedded in the code so that a technology provider can actually then say, yes, this is real or oh, this I is oh, fake. The distributors, you know? so the big companies that's it, can yes. say, this is, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's the, an improvement already, isn't it? It is an improvement, but I guess the danger of something like that is as soon as you do something good like that, you know, the bad actors out there, they'll start to look for ways to hack into that and break yeah. that, you know, okay. and then, then, you the, know, the tech companies have to update it. The bad actors just seem to be so far ahead all the time, don't they? Well, it's, uh, I guess, that you know, they have no legislation. So, the you know, the, the, the big tech companies, for all their evils, you know, they've got to uh, com- comply with legislation. The bad actors out there do what they like, essentially. I, I'm glad you brought up social media because that is, like, obviously one of the big changes in our communications over the last couple of years. Social media, it's obviously, we can, we can communicate with our friends and people all over yeah. the world. We can see stories and things that we wouldn't have previously experienced. But the lack of regulation and the, the lack of willingness to regulate them must surely be the kind of, um, precursor or the, the omens for what's coming with AI. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've learned as a society that we didn't do a good job of preparing for social media mm. uh, and legislating for it. And I think people are aware that we, we don't want to make that same mistake twice, you know, with AI. And I can see from, you know, some of the, the, uh, the work that I'm doing at the moment and the studies that I'm actually doing over at Oxford, that there's a real focus now on ethical applications of AI. You know, yeah. really people putting a focus on that. And a lot of them coming from the founders. Exactly. Yes, ex- exactly. Yes. Like, for example, as I said, that the example of uh, the people uh, like OpenAI folks meeting with Joe Biden at the weekend. Yes, you know, That's the company behind ChatGPT. It is indeed. Yes, yes. that's them. Yes. Uh, and the, but that, it requires prompting, doesn't it? ChatGPT, those kind of um, generative AIs requires us to put something in such as uh, write, a, write a book in the style of Declan Foster about <laughs> putting humans in the heart. That's of right. And, 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 that's, and that could be a challenge as well. So, for example, especially for educational institutions now, you know, they, you know, they don't know if students are actually writing their own essays now because yeah. you can ask, ask ChatGPT to write an essay for you, you know, with 500 words and it should be, you know, this style. Um, and, of course, then, you know, w- once people started doing that, somebody else, you know, created a, a tool that can detect, you know, AI oh. tech. So you can have... So that exists you know, now. Yeah, that exists now. So okay. you can, it could be, you, you know, you could be found out if you're doing that. <laughs> Isn't it funny that the stories, uh, and the media sometimes does obviously push the scary element and uh, forgets to tell us the solution might have happened. That's it, that's, that's very if true. You, if yes. you look for it, it'll be there. Um, is AI coming for our jobs? You know, when somebody asks me that question, my usual response is AI probably won't take your job, but somebody who can leverage AI or use AI better than you, they might. You know, so it's it's all about education and staying yeah. informed. Um, and, and what's really interesting, we're talking about ChatGPT and that area of generative AI. So the traditional thinking used to be that AI would re- would replace uh, manual or entry level jobs, but what we've actually seen with generative AI is actually starting uh, impacting on knowledge workers and the white collar economy, and even starting to taking some in the US some lawyers' jobs. Yes, there's an application called uh, Harvey.ai, and that's being used in some firms, and it actually is where it's you know it's a ChatGPT type function. 
and it's actually doing some of the groundwork that would normally be done by legal folk. So ah. it's impacting into paralegals and yes, paralegals. Yes, yes yeah, exactly. So taking yeah, taking up some of their some of their work where we thought that was always the safe jobs. And in fact, there's another uh, example. Um, National Public Radio in, in, in the US they released a tool which we were able to input a job and it would tell you the likelihood of it being replaced. And they found oh, that wow. bookkeepers were ni- over ninety percent certain that that job would be replaced in the coming year. So accountants are in trouble. Yes, accountants and lawyers. So who knew? These are the safe jobs we were told to move yeah. into. You know, but what did you say? It was ninety percent likely to ninety percent likely to be replaced to be replaced in the coming years. Now that's bookkeepers. Maybe ah, you know accountants are safe, but yeah. Now the counter argument, of course, to AI taking certain jobs is also going to create a lot of other jobs that never existed before. And that's and that's true, and that's what the experts are telling us, and that remains to be seen. And I think the only thing that's certain is that there will be a period of disruption. Mm-hmm. You know, AI may create some marvelous jobs, and you talked about the prompts as well. So, for example, there's a new role people talk about called prompt engineering. Yes. So, where you learn how to create these prompts to ask these chat GPTs, you know, to, to, so you get a good response. So you get the you best know. results. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, those jobs already exist now, don't they? They're growing. They do, they do exist, and they're growing. But again, mm. it's like you know, we don't know how much disruption is going to take place. Um, and the other thing I'd, I'd mention, we talked about the impact on white co- white collar workers. Mm. Um, you know, ChatGPT or robots, it's not going to be able to find a leak in your attic anytime soon. No, no. <laughs> so plumbers and electricians, their jobs are safe, you know, for the foreseeable future. Anything you do with your hands, essentially. Yes, really, yes. Anything sort of skilled that you can do with your hands. You know, robots uh, aren't going to be able to do it anytime soon. And of course, people like to know something's been made by hand, don't they? They do as well. There's a massive extra value and we now understand, oh, you'll have to pay the person who's actually done this. That's it. So you have a kind of a positive outlook somewhat. So are you sort of a more of a measured... Um, kind of a spectator of this AI sport we're looking at. Yeah, I'm actually quite positive on AI. I think it has the capabilities to even solve some of these existential crises that, that we're faced with, like, you know, climate change and, and food shortages, etc. I think AI will play a huge role in that. But we just have to uh, use it carefully. And I also think mm-hmm. that everybody needs to be informed about what AI is so they can have informed conversations about whether they're for it or against it. You need yeah. to understand what it is. Is it not know? too broad a thing just to kind of um, define? I, I don't think so. I mean, for example, when I talk to yeah, project management folk or executives and I explain to them, you know, what machine learning is and how it makes predictions, you know, you can start to say, OK, you know, as I said, it's not magic. You know, it's just maths and statistics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because um, uh, when Amazon Alexa took off, everyone thought, well, this is AI. And yes. there was probably a lot of uh, people didn't realise that there were thousands of humans working away and still are there, aren't they, transcribing and annotating all of the the requests uh, to to improve its performance that still happens isn't yeah it? that still happens and doing the, the the work behind the scenes so and again that's that's in line with that comment about you know AI will create new jobs so there mm. are you know there are people building these algorithms and fine tuning them in the background so it's creating jobs as well but as I said there, I think we're faced with a, a period of disruption in the coming years tell us the good stuff that AI can do um it has solved lots of kind of medical conundrums and really complex. Well, you can you can start yeah it? you can start to see where uh, AI is used at the moment um, where it can uh, identify you know cancers as well you know yes. and it can look at medical images and help doctors to to identify mm-hmm. uh, uh, cancers um, and you can see with things like ChatGPT there and for example they're fantastic tools to just to use for brainstorming. 
you know so yeah. you know again you know don't use it to write your article for you or your <laughs> your essay but you can help it help you to brainstorm you know you do, it's ideas. actually very good at it it's very good at um, um, recommending films and uh, yes. books and things like that if you've watched something yeah. and you're going to go I want to see Liam Neeson do you know something like this they'll spit out a load of recommendations very very precise and specific ones yes. and it's all about the prompting isn't it the more information you give it that more is, specific information that's it. and, it's, and it's a whole scale so if some of your a listeners if you google prompt engineering you know yeah. you can learn how to do that properly and then you get the, the better results back you yeah know? And, the, and obviously colleges will jump on this as well so it's going to create more courses and so on so. yes and some of the courses are, are out there at the moment yes yeah um how do we you you have you have the idea that the products that can be designed specifically in tandem with human psychology is something you go into in your book yes yeah so we're, we're trying to say that um you know, some of the, the, the big tech companies, they actually uh, hire um, teams of behavioral scientists, you know, to keep us engaged, you know, on these platforms. So what we're trying to say is actually, let's look at it the other way and say, let's design products that don't take advantage okay. of these, you know, these so uh, the social human media, weaknesses. They've kind of, they've designed it specifically to keep us hooked. They do. They're specifically designed to keep you hooked for just a few extra seconds or a few extra minutes um, you know, so you get that dopamine rush, and you keep on your phone, and you keep scrolling, you know, and, and then you. And that's obviously to you know for for their growth and sales and adding yes. people to it. So you know, how are you going to convince companies to you know use it for good when it doesn't involve improving their bottom line? Well, uh, I think it's probably because a lot of consumers now, particularly younger generations, you know, look at it, have an ethical focus as well, and they want to use. Uh, uh, products that are from companies that have an ethical focus you know that aren't taking advantage of them you know and I think that's where that's where companies can have an advantage uh, Talk to us then about social media because your your lovely sunny outlook on technology the, <laughs> the good things that social media have done for us Well I think you can see that there's connectivity and communication mm, you know I, one, yeah. I, I, I can talk to people you know instantly you know a, a, around the world Australia and the US wherever you know and keep in touch with them Instantly, and you know, friends and family, um, it gives us a wealth of information and awareness as well. You know, we've got so much information, uh, so much new sources as, as well of, of news and opinions that we can go to, yeah. um, and also for uh, let's not forget uh, sites like LinkedIn where you can go and do networking, yes. and you can uh, for professional opportunities, and you can even go job hunting as well. And that's a yeah. deliberate design, isn't it? Because it's not set up like the likes of Twitter and Facebook, which is literally designed to split camps into one side that's or the right. other, isn't it? Yes, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's supposed to keep people in, in the middle, in the centre. And yeah. it's worked very well because it has literally divided uh, people on issues that they probably didn't care about previously and are suddenly now devoting all of their energies into rowing with each other. And it's either it's either one, it's completely binary, isn't it? It is. Uh, and that's one of the key dangers of, of, uh, of social media is where we're spreading people into different camps, you know, and we have an echo chamber. So you're starting to hear the arguments that you like and the opinions that mm. you like and they're being fed back to you and that just reinforces your opinion and sometimes then we don't get to hear the other side but it has totally destroyed global discourse hasn't it? for it profit has. and it is for profit because we forget that um, yes that it's designed this way 
Yes, it so, is. So yeah. is LinkedIn the sort of because I'm hearing people drifting towards there. Is that a kind of it's still owned by a massive uh, global conglomerate? So. Well, uh, LinkedIn, yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's owned by Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Yes, but 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 I guess you know they're they're they don't profit from having you know controversial views. Really, yes. you know, it's all about uh, hearing how you can improve your interview skills or how you can network better. You know, so they're kind of very so the central positive, kind of connectivity. Games, the positive, yes, is the main thing. Yes, uh, yeah. Is there anything else? That, uh, spreading information. I suppose about things, isn't it? And yeah, it gives us more information, gives us opportunities for different opinions as well, as long as we use it wisely, you know. Um, our governments, what are they doing about AI that, that they have, based on learning the lessons of the mistakes made on social media? Are there more laws in, in train uh, than there might have been before the setup? Yeah. Social media? Because we have time now, don't we? We do, yes. And I, th- I think, for example, the EU is doing a fantastic job around this. Um, the EU AI is coming out. Uh, I think they... they they passed the initial draft in June, um, and that act is classifies different uh, AI products and tools into different categories. You know, all the way from depending on, depending on their level of risk, depending from low risk all the way up to unacceptable, and depending on how you categorize the product. That's the then you're you're subject to different uh, laws and different obligations. You know, so the first thing is rank the impact of this AI tool, and then your obligations. You know, uh, come out of that. One of the biggest problems with social media is, of course, um, the, the the safety of children online. Yes, and yeah. I presume AI makes makes everything here worse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there the, 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 there are uh, more dangers online now. Again, we talk about bad actors, bad actors, and particularly, you know, uh, in terms of fake images, that's been a lot in the news lately. Yes. Um, so AI can do a lot of bad as well. Mm. And we need people to be uh, aware of that. And we need that legislation to protect that. So this Online Safety and Media Regulation, Regulation Act that we have, the OSMR, uh, is that going to help anything or is that already just a little bit behind in, in tackling AI? Uh, I think what what it does is actually applies the legislation to uh, um, the, the digital channels as well that are already applied to you know to traditional media. If I can say that, like so, it applies now to you know YouTube and Netflix and Amazon. So I think that's where it's good. Yeah, um, I just look at the text here because you're talking about the positive aspects of AI, and someone says I've been using ChatGPT almost since the start, and I've got reasonably proficient with, with my prompt engineering. I have ADHD. I use it to help me organise my day. And I had a family court matter where I couldn't afford to hire my own solicitor, but my salary is too high to get legal aid, so it's somewhere in the middle. I yeah. plugged in the relevant legislation into it, asked her to look online for whatever it could tell me about the judge, their past judgments, and I used its advice, won my case, representing myself, where the other side had spent a lot of money on a barrister. So, so many applications. It's That's a fantastic application <laughs> yeah. of ChatGPT. And of course, yeah. the risk, though, uh, is because ChatGPT currently can't see past 2021. That's correct. So it, it's, it's <laughs> trained on that uh, data up to 2021. And also interesting, you've got to be careful when you use it that you check the sources because it's prone to something called hallucination. So all it's trying to do, and again, in part of my work in demystifying AI, something like ChatGPT, all it's trying to do is predict the next word. But it's just doing it, you know, looking okay. back over thousands of words, you know. So all it wants to do is, what's the next correct word in this sentence? And sometimes it, it just happens to make stuff sometimes up. Sometimes it'll make it up because it wants to fill in a gap. So yes, not great for Lee, but it's worked for this person. Yeah, apparently worked Obviously, for that person. But that's yeah. all, all because of the prompting that they, it, that they uh, inputted into it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah that prompt uh, engineering we talked about. It's an unbelievable world. Um, what is going to come next? What, what What is the immediate next thing that's going to happen with artificial intelligence that we should watch out for? Um, 
Well, I, I think we t- we, I talked about that uh, meeting with the AI folks, meeting with Joe Biden, and I think the the White House is bringing out um, an executive order shortly around that in consultation with those AI folk. And I was particularly pleased, as I said, when I read this over the weekend, to find out that they'd agreed to, you know, voluntarily place that digital wa- watermark, you know, within those images and within uh, text generators yeah. as well. So I think we'll start to see a better relationship between government and big tech and maybe saying, well, listen, we, we, we mucked up social media. We didn't do that right. So let's try and get AI done properly. It's, it's a big hope. Well, it is. <laughs> I yes, wish we could I'm all an optimist. have optimism about this. And uh, someone else is pointing out here, is it coming from our jobs? Um, of course, is. That's, this is why the actors and writers are on strike in the US. Yeah. Workers' protections, legislation, ethical oversight are the only ways to control technology. It doesn't have ethics built in, of course. It doesn't. And commercial yeah. companies are ultimately only motivated by profits. But this is part of what you're saying is that people are already standing up earlier, sooner than we did on social media. Yeah. And it's the, what's happened to the writers and actors' strike is going to have a profound impact impact because AI is right at the heart of their 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 discussion, isn't it? Their complaint, it is, absolutely. And, and there are things talked about. I think Bill Gates, who mentioned this idea of um, perhaps we need a tax on robots or on, you know, things. Yeah. So if you replace, you know, workers with some robots mm. or some AI systems, then you've got to pay a tax on that, you know, to compensate those workers for losing their I, jobs. I worry your optimism starts to falter when you talk about tax and tax. <laughs> because we certainly haven't done that very well. Look, it's amazing. Well, for people who want to know more, humology is the word you've... That's it. Yeah, yep. and we've got. Our, you can go to our website, uh, humology.com, and you can uh, find more information on there. Putting humans at the heart of technology, and it's co-authored, we should say, as well, Declan. It is, of course, yes, with my co-author, Joanne. Well, thank you very much for coming into us. And we haven't detected uh, even a smidge of Australian in oh, there. Oh, good. So 18 years. When you must have been hanging out with all the paddies when you're that's over it. there. 51551, that's the text. We have to take a break back after these. She means business. She's putting the headphones on and everything. You don't, you don't need those, Emma Dorn. I just thought to get the full effect in there. <laughs> smooth, do smooth you, voice. Do I have to take a photograph of you with your headphones on? Is no, that the idea? Is that this? Because no. comedians now, you need to break the internet. Actually, Tommy Tiernan was in here a couple of weeks ago. What was he and saying? He says, Go on. You don't need... I have to come to that bit of <laughs> He said, uh, comedians, they used to want to break America, but now it's all about breaking the internet. Which I thought was a very interesting way of looking at it. There's no well, need you, to break America now, is what he said. Well, yeah, but if you, I suppose if you break the internet, you've broken America. Well, not broken America, but you but know what he, I mean? He's, I think he's saying it's kind of better because it's such a kind of a big thing. You don't need to physically go over there and okay, say, good. tick the box, I've broken America. Okay, good. I just started off, <laughs> I swear it was Monday, I just started off being cynical when you mentioned Tommy Turner and internet because sometimes I find older comedians they have this kind of snobbery around people that do stuff on the internet. Oh, is And you kind of feel like, yeah, and you kind of feel like saying to them, well, lads, like back when news were coming up, there was the panel. And, you know, when mm. you did TV, everyone was watching the telly. It's not the same anymore. The internet is our telly now. But there, was, there were gatekeepers, weren't there, for comedy because you yeah. had to get on the telly or somewhere in the mainstream media. But that, now the internet means you can just go yourself. You can just go yourself, you can do it yourself, you can film it on a cracked Samsung phone and you're good to go. This is an interesting point you made. So how does this sort of snobbery from the Why older you, comedians, which I think is... Uh, <laughs> well, like, how does that manifest itself? Is there a it would of... manifest itself. So I wouldn't get it too bad because I always did stand-up and internet yeah, stuff. Yes. But there's some people who 
as I started doing internet stuff. Now, sketches, I have to say, I have to clarify, I'm just vaguely talking about internet stuff. I'm leaving that open to all sorts yes, of... Yes, Emma Doran is with us this morning. Good morning, <laughs> sketch comedian. Um, <laughs> tell us about your life, Emma. You started doing sketches on the internet um, on, on the former Sorry, company known as Twitter. I've forgotten we're on the radio. I just Sorry, started yes. as if we were chatting. Sorry, apologies for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Let's, come, let's start so, with something. So you're known, you're known best, aren't you, for the sketch? That's fair enough to say. We can say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we can yes. say that. And you're yeah. proud of the fact that you um, came through the internet. You rose to fame through the internet, even yes. though you were slogging away doing live format. Yes. In a comedy club. Yeah. I think that's what you mean by the snobbery because some of the kind of older generation comedians going, we had to go through the hecklers, the abuse, the dirty clubs, the five people, whereas you lot just had the internet and you could go to a huge audiences in a matter of seconds. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. kind of what, where that's, they're coming from, isn't it? That was kind of the, I suppose, the judgment for some of them and yeah, a little bit unfair. The pandemic was brilliant for comedy. It was. It feels awful to say it. I know it's fine. You can it's, say can that you, now. Can you say it now? Can, totally can you say, say yeah, yeah. COVID was good for me? We, we, no one even remembers that. No one talks about <laughs> it. We're not going to ever reckon with it. Probably 10 years time, we'll all have a, a, another breakdown about it. But yes. like for the moment, you can say very um, yes. confidently that the pandemic was wonderful for, for comedy. What did you do? So um, when we got the news that we all had to head home mm-hmm. for the three weeks, I was delighted. <laughs> Where are you I, heading home from? You had a job. So I was in the office. I was working in a, a radio station as a copywriter at the time. So I was writing lots of ads about hairdressers and carpets and stuff like that. Oh, very good. Okay. So you know the way when they say the sale's nearly over and there won't be another sale? There will. <laughs> Spoiler alert. There always is because I was writing all those ads. They lie. Yeah, it's a big lie. So um, You're really thrashing various industries. No, but I really enjoyed the job, but I just, okay. it was the whole being in the office. Because you know yeah. if you're a writer, if you're writing stuff, it's very hard to be around a big crowd of people. You're kind of better... Just well sit in a train station and try to come up with Yeah, or kind of be in your house with your clothes on and your dressing gown over it at the kitchen table, you know what I mean? <laughs> kind of snacking. That's where you do your best work. So I was happy to go home and I was still happy to do the job, but then it meant that I had time. So I was at home for my lunch break and I started getting out the tripod and making more. So I'd already been making videos. Yeah. I started making more. Obviously, we were all on the internet mm-hmm. all of the time. And we didn't pretend. We didn't try to pretend that we weren't. No, there was people are still else to on. Do. Yeah, people are still on the internet now, but they have to pretend that they're not because <laughs> they're in a workplace. Yes, do you know what I mean? There is that. Well, there was a bit of honesty about it during COVID. So, um, like lots of comedians, sketch comedians at the time, I just made loads of videos and and one had a great of, you time. hit the thing that because everyone ran out of ways to explain what was going on in our world, twenty 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 one. Um, everyone just kind of saying it's mad, isn't it? Mad, isn't and it? And this yeah. has become. Your um your great discovery or an albatross around your neck from which you'll never recover. <laughs> I think discovery. I think as Irish people we're great. You we trademarked have. mad, isn't I, it? I hope so. Yeah, but we as Irish people now I can't take too much credit. We are great at phrases that mean absolutely nothing <laughs> yes. and that cover a multitude. Yeah. You know those phrases yeah. like if you say ask someone how they are and they say grand, I mean that could mean anything, mm-hmm. couldn't it? It could. It, it can be used anywhere from. Yeah. Giving birth to um, arriving at a funeral. Yeah, you won the lotto. How are you feeling? You're, you know, you've been declared bankrupt, anything. Right. Or like, sure, this is it. I'm not <laughs> sure, you know yourself. Or it can even just be a head nod. That could mean absolutely anything. So I think mad, isn't it, was the one that got us through lockdown. Because when you got to that point of saying all you could say. <laughs> and you could say we, to anyone. Anyone. At any moment about anything. 
You could say somebody who was um, heading off. You could say to someone who was heading off to get their first vaccine, or you could say to somebody who was protesting outside of GPs about vaccines. So mm. That is not perfect. <laughs> Perfect. It's kind of that's like... Right, that's actually a good way of placating those protesters, wasn't it? Yeah. Mad, isn't it? Because they're not sure which side. They're just assuming based on confirmation <laughs> bias. Oh, that was, there's someone who's with us. It's a handy one in taxis as well. Yeah. Yeah, just mad, mad isn't it? <laughs> Any opinion that's drawn with you, mad isn't it? So you're not saying how, what side of the fence you're on. You, you wouldn't mad, want to using it too early, would you? The mad, isn't it? You've got to get through, I think, two or three back and forths before you can comfortably finish a conversation with a stranger as an Irish person. Okay, right. That's for me personally. I don't think you can start off at Matt, isn't it? Because that's kind of dismissive. That would be a bit of a strange place to start, yeah. Yeah. Where do you go beyond that? <laughs> if, if everything's mad, then that's kind of, a, it's very much a full stop. It's punctuation. <laughs> yeah, if, you know, you finish at that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do people come up to you now and, and say, they, mad, isn't it? They do. Or they, like, now at the time, when things started to open up, people said it to me a lot. And, um, then one time I was in, I was enjoying it. I'll be honest about it. I was, I was enjoying it. I was, I was smiling. I was laughing. I was loving it. And then <laughs> I was a little smug, a little head of me going around thinking I was great. And then somebody said it to me one day, it's in my head, isn't it? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, very good. And they're like, what? It was a conversation. But they were just saying. They were saying it to me. Okay. And then I had to go in to explain and, oh no, sorry. Oh, you, and I had oh. this video. Oh. I went viral and the yeah. this, I'm, I'm really well known. I it was Tommy Turner. No, I'm not <laughs> <Okay. laughs> But it was just, yeah, it was that was bad. So that put me in my place pretty sharp. But it, it, it set you off uh, nicely into the world. And, and you, I presume you've earned your chops now among the old generation of spiteful comedians. No, I think I have. No, no, uh, no. Because you've been uh, touring a fair bit. Have, uh, like yeah. it's a very different discipline then, isn't it? To be doing sketches one minute and then the live. Because the sketches are one thing for a particular format, aren't they? Yeah. But when you're live on stage... You kind of sketches, or you're no. pretending to be types, are you? Yeah. Will you tell me? Well, some some of my sketches actually they would be very like my stand up, but just in like in a, a different way. Hmm. So there would be some crossover, but yeah, they are two completely different disciplines, and they're yeah, it's just different. What I mean, but the I sketches are kind of them. like they're like send ups of particular characters that we know in Ireland, whereas you kind of have to be somewhat yourself on stage. Yeah, but I think a lot of the characters I would do would be myself. Aha. Uh-huh. That's kind of the part that I'm not... See, so you're, you're just a, an Irish person who says nothing of meaning. Is that what you're saying to us? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. But um, no, I think because I started them both at around the same time, so I've been doing stand-up for like 10 years, I think I have... Um, yeah, I've got a good handle on what's the difference between a, like a sketch video and then stand up like doing it in person. So they complement each other well, but they're definitely different. Di- I mean, disciplines, that sounds a bit much, but you know what I mean? It is. Yeah. Sure well, you know. We can sit here and talk about the work. Yeah. And, the, uh, the, 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 work, art. the art. Um, it's, well, I mean, autobiographical. You're on stage and your family are obviously used to it with 10 years. Yeah. Um, but do they ever get used to comedians really? I'm, I can get away with it because I can just put on masks and pretend to be different yes. people but you have to be yourself don't you yeah I think my dad goes to a few gigs oh right yeah with, I mean fair play to him. my brothers have never been to see me my mother hasn't uh, come to see me on this tour right because she told me she said oh I might be very nervous are you the only girl in your family yeah only I was bro- kind of like who are you telling like I'm nervous as well it's grand like, so you're in a manly man's world 
Yeah, yes. Up, oh, that, that's interesting. I'm the youngest. Oh, you're the youngest? Yes. Of, okay, of a fleet of boys. There's a, there's, I've just two older brothers, yeah, so she doesn't, she doesn't enjoy them. Like, she thinks I'm very... <laughs> She thinks I'm very good and all the rest of it. And she's very happy for me. My mum. Oh, your mum. Okay. She doesn't enjoy it. She's worried for you. She's worried. Yeah, the uh, brothers uh, are worried. Everyone's uh, worried. I'm not worried. Well, they can use that as an excuse. Uh, it's not, after 10 years, you'd imagine they would have gone to. Yeah, wouldn't you? Do you want to do some therapy on this? Do you think there's something there that I brothers? should? Yeah, yeah. I think they should go. They really should go. <laughs> but then again, I haven't. Are you talking about them in the show? Is that the reason? I do mention them, yeah. All they right. don't know that though. I thought that would lure them. <laughs> well, I'd say Dad must have told told them. Maybe, maybe I need to offer them free tickets. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, I well, they pay. You have children as well. I do. I have children. Yes. Um, I um, I was going to explain why, but <laughs> <laughs> well, we know I think why. Well, knows. <laughs> do we? Um, do they go to the show? Are they old enough to go to your show? No, my daughter is. My eldest is twenty. Yes. So now, like, I was young when I had her, but um, thankfully I was very well set up. It was just after my confirmation. So I did quite well. Medical if you could. But um, no, she's 20 and she doesn't go. She's no interest. No interest in We're kind of, it's getting dark now, isn't it? That my well, family no, I have. like that. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. So no family members would ever go to see <laughs> work. The, uh, do your family go to see you? Yeah, they do, of course. Yeah, because, because they're not being me and they know that okay. being mentioned in the show. It is different, isn't it? And do you enjoy them going? Or is it, no. does it add an extra... It does add a little uh, bit of stress. Yeah, yes. kind of going, oh, you feel like, um, do I have to tidy up the place a little bit? Yeah, or they're texting you <laughs> well, they, 10 minutes We have before. to do things after the show. Do they know how late it is? Yeah, so, I'm tired. No, they don't text things before the, after the, uh, before the show at all. Oh, that's no. good. Because no. usually people, you know, text you and say, what time is it starting at? And not much commentary afterwards either. Good or bad. That's what you would, that's the perfect sweet spot. You don't want any. Oh, we don't want commentary. You want a line of well done or whatever. But no, my daughter doesn't go. Your daughter's go, uh, not interested in comedy in that world? I think she's interested in comedy. She's just not interested. She's just. (laughs) But she featured in sketches though. You've done. She's done sketches. Yeah, no, she's happy to get into sketches. That's called comedy. Yeah, yeah. We've done, we've done a podcast together. Oh, yes. Okay. So I think she's just not bothered to actually physically leave the house and go and see me. I think her, I think as far as she's concerned, like I see enough already. And that's Yeah, I can you know? see that. Yeah. yeah. You, you're definitely doing some stuff about home and the show, aren't you? Yes. You know, such as what are you, what is getting under their skin that you're discussing on the show? Well, I think I, I basically just say everything. I talk about everything. I talk mm-hmm. about um how I met my partner, how I got pregnant at 18, my time in court town. So that's what happened when I was 18. Oh, yes. Okay. I went to like discover the world mm-hmm. and I got as far as court town and I got pregnant in about four days. Great. So I just, okay. <laughs> fantastic four days. <laughs> but, you know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't planned or anything like that. And then I came back home. I did my leave insert. Wow. And then um, it was me and my daughter and I went off to college. And so I'm talking about all that stuff. So maybe she's just like, I was there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I've, I've heard enough. Um, so, but I do try to be, I would say I'm definitely more honest in my stand-up than my sketches. Yes. Because I feel like if somebody comes to see your stand-up, it's more intimate. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like if you put something online, anyone can see it. Whereas if someone comes to your show they've, to a certain extent, bought into you. Now, I do realise that Siobhan might be there because Sarah had a spare ticket. I was like, will you come? She's like, I've no idea who she is. 
<laughs> but like a lot this of people. This is a random chiffon you're talking about. Yeah, but do you know what okay. I mean? Like a, the people that are yeah, going to see. Yeah, you always see the plus one. Yeah. That's been dragged along. And, and you probably fight to win their that person's attention. Of Don't course. you do that? That of is course. the insecurity of all comedians going, yes. I can see the person doesn't want to be here. They're kind of refusing on behalf of the other partner just to let everyone know they're enjoying the show. So you kind of fight really hard you, for, that, for that person. I don't know why you do no that. better feeling than winning them over, is there? But, uh, oh, it's brilliant. Oh, but it, oh, our oh, egos, our fragile egos. It's a, ter- it's a terrible thing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I do, I think it's just naturally, it's a more uh, intimate kind of, setting mm. being on stage and they, you can eyeball the people as well so um, I'm pretty like yeah I'm pretty honest on stage The key to comedy off is, is the tension isn't it so when you yes. land an audience particularly with our dark history in Ireland mm. that uh, you became pregnant at 18 on a visit from uh, are you, you're, what part of Dublin are you from? I'm from Rathfarnham. Rathfarnham, yeah. down to Cortan. God, the dubs really love Wexford, don't they, for their holidays? They really do. Really do, yeah. They don't like going too far. <laughs> no. If they go any further, Straight they won't be Yeah, if they go any further, they I'm not going left or right. Time. I'm yeah. going down. That's it. <laughs> What's down there? Wexford. Street. Okay. That's it. What's at the top of it? Cortown. Okay, that's it. That's me done, basically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the attention, do do you see audiences um, squirm a small bit, even young people, when, when they hear about a I think teenage probably, pregnancy? I think probably young people more so than people my own age. Really? I find that younger audiences are more um, conservative or like... Easy, Collectively, well, easy, you mean? Yes. Because yeah. I remember when I started comedy, people used to worry about, like, say, if there was a an old woman sitting up the front, mm. you know, like kind of in her 70s or 80s, like, oh, I can't be saying what I'm saying in front of her. Yeah. But then you suddenly learn like, oh, she's been there, done it. Of she's probably the one that <laughs> like is laugh, has the big filthy laugh and saying, oh, I love all that stuff. Yeah, Tell I me love, more about love that. those audience people, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, like, we can't be shocked. Yeah. <laughs> the things we've seen. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it funny? Well. I think you mean as well collectively because we know that individually people have, but audiences when they get together, they're sort of afraid to be seen Reacting in a certain way to certain things, you find? Oh, definitely. I feel like it's the, the conditions have to be perfect for comedy. So it has to be like dark, but not too dark. You know, like pe- people really shouldn't be able to see people in the audience so that they feel the freedom to laugh. Yeah. Or if they're laughing at something that people can't see, mm-hmm. I'm laughing at this dirty bit or on the edge bit or whatever it is. After that joke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't know. It's funny, isn't you, it? You need darkness. They need, yeah, they can't be kind of be able to eyeball each other and recognise each other. You can't, like, oh, the acoustics have to be perfect. You can't have, like, the bar clinking with glasses. It's like, it's, the conditions, you know, like, <laughs> have you ever done? It's com- like a lab. <laughs> yeah, like, totally. Anytime I've done comedy at something that isn't a comedy setting, it's never the same. So, like, I've done comedy at weddings or, oh. you know, there's been spoken words. Tell us about the wedding comedy and what. We've all had to go through this. Go on. It's bad, enough. It's bad. I mean, look, I'm still available. Um, I'm with Avery. You can email John. Uh, happy to do it. But, but it won't go well it for anybody. Go. It's Is not it? going to make your special day camps. better. There are two yes. camps in a, at a wedding and they're watching out for each side laughing at the other person's expense. The other it's very hard. And some, like, it may be a case of... I'm very good bride. at it, by the way. Also available. Yes. Better, better than Emma Doran. Sorry. Continue no, on. No, look, I'm probably cheaper. So it depends on what your budget is. If I'll do put, for less. 
because <laughs> I don't have Avery Talent Agency. They add cream on top, so I would do it. <laughs> I'll do it for cash. Can we say that? Can we? Sorry, this is still live, by the way. Just yeah. let you know. Five no, one five one you know, Before text. COVID, you used, there was plenty of cash in comedy. Cash in your hand, it's all gone. Well, not a good thing to be admitting. You know. Okay, but whatever. No, go back to the wedding comedy. So. This is what we're interested in now. <laughs> It is, you know, it's it's a prime wedding season and people are now yeah. listening to this going, yeah, I've actually got a comedian booked. It's tough because there is actually so much entertainment at a wedding. You don't really need the comedy. It's a bit overwhelming, yeah. You've got the speeches, but you've got like, you know, Auntie Mary, who is proclaiming that the wind just hit her in a certain way or she's just off antibiotics or... <laughs> She's wearing slippy shoes or whatever it is. So there's all sorts of entertainment going on at the wedding. I'm not sure if you need a stand-up comedian coming in. You also have too broad of an audience. You've got children yes. all the way children, up to uh, the older people. And, and this is the best man who's never done comedy and now decided to do it for the first time in his life doesn't understand that he's not performing just to his mates who've been to the stag. And that's where it goes horribly wrong, isn't it? But do you get information on both sides? Do you have family or do, you, do, do they say just come along and do your thing? I don't mean I don't do many of them. Like you're, I've just you're, very, you're a nice, clean comedian, though, aren't you? Emma? They're nice and clean, perfect for weddings. <laughs> you could do a funeral. I mean, you take the money and run, don't you? But um... <laughs> just make sure you charge VAT, all right? Everybody's <laughs> <laughs> got. I'll do Christmas as well, um, birthday parties, whatever. I'm available. There's a text in here. There's a slight embarrassment in the Irish when it comes to seeing one of the family performing on stage, whether it's acting whether it's singing, anything. It's also a slight incredulity that one of the family is actually that good to draw public attention. They've hit on something here. It's a whole mixture of things, so they'd rather leave them alone, but they're ready to pick up if you fail. True. Uh, There's no accounting for the Irish psyche, says Mary. I was going to say, is that my brother, (laughs) my brother Simon? Yes, I think Mary has definitely hit on something there. It's kind of a bit strange, isn't it, that you would have... It's embarrassing. I mean, the whole thing is embarrassing that you are (laughs) saying... I'm so desperate to make people I don't know laugh that I'm willing to go out. I'm willing to organise dates and go to places and walk out on stage. Yeah. It's all a bit much, isn't it? And then people are there going, we want to laugh so much that we will buy tickets to see this. Mm-hmm. And they will, they they want you to succeed. So they're going to be laughing away. Whereas at the wedding, they're going, huh, I'd like to see this one now. Yeah. So no, Fall I totally ours. get that. I think it is a bit. Speaking, speaking of your dates, definitely done, by the way. Um, <laughs> list out your list unashamedly now. Come on, this is how you sell things. List your tour dates out unashamedly. Um, lots in September. Well, the big one is Vicker Street, Dublin. You've done Vicker Street a couple of times already. I've done a couple of times this year, so that's that's the that'll be me finished in Dublin then. You're okay. So. You're really draining uh, Dublin. Uh, September the twenty third. That's a good time actually when the nights start closing in again. I think so. I mean, now at the moment we're still kind of in summer buzz. I'm going away now in a couple of yeah. weeks myself, so. But when yeah, I come your back. agent, uh, forget about your holidays, your agent is now screaming <laughs> at the radio to list out your dates. Abbey Tavern <laughs> in Hoth, 14th yes. September. You're going to Great Gate uh, Theatre in Limerick in September. The Waterford Theatre Royal, which is beautiful venue. I haven't it's played like, before oh, and I'm really come. looking forward to it. Also in September, emmadorencomedy.com. And what nights are you doing the uh, comedy festival in the Ivy Gardens this week? All of them. I didn't book any weddings this oh, year. Doing, so yeah, ah, I'm doing all of them. Which I'm, is uh, starting the 27th. What date are we on now? The Thursday. 25th. So Thursday. Thursday yeah. all the way through. To, uh, Sunday. to the weekend in, in tents in the Ivy Gardens. It's great. That's a great place to... It is lovely, I have to say, because it's kind of the chance that you get to catch up with all the other comedians. Hang on now, you have to work here as well. There's no catching you do. up. Um, yeah. But we talk about the internet comedians. We've got the state of them and uh, we do all that stuff. And then we get on 
stage. And we just yeah tell people we're available for weddings and that kind of thing. Okay, emmadorncomedy.com. Thank you very much. Thanks that's all well. you are. You're just a website. You're a just URL. Just a website. That's yeah, it. Thank you for the Emmadorn URL for being in here today. Emmadorn sketch, Love Island in your 30s is so painfully funny and true. I go around quoting it all the time, says this texter. So that's, oh, that's the thing nice. for someone to look up if they don't know who you are. Because oh, yeah. older crowd, you know, Radio 1 and all that. Oh, okay. uh, they're the ones who love the dirty laugh uh, more than anything. They'll be the filthy. Hey, Jorty. Hey, Jorty. Is that what I'm saying? 51551 is the text. We have to take a break. Thanks, Emma. Good morning to Sinead Kennedy and you're in here you're bouncing brightly into the studio with all of your positive vibes and your energy in good form. I am thank you very much Oliver for having me in. Permanently in good form. Uh, no, not permanently no. in good form. No, anyone who knows me will say far from that. We wouldn't believe that if you, <laughs> no, if you said it. it uh, this is an amazing story because it's a story about your life, basically, isn't it? Wheels kind of come off. Will we start with all the sad stuff, first of all? Is that the best way? Where, where, where do you like to begin your story? Yeah, so just to tell the listeners that I wrote a book. You are. Yeah, about, um, it's called Life is a Cycle and mm-hmm. it's basically a story about moving on. So in 2005 is where the story starts when I was 32 years old mm-hmm. and I was in a really bad place. Uh, Life was very chaotic. My head was all over the place, literally. And uh, unfortunately, there was a huge big intervention and uh, I dropped all the balls. I was juggling too many balls, dropped all the balls and ended up, uh, for my own safety, being taken into St. Pat's, which was a real rude awakening. Yes. And that's where the book starts. A, a psych- the St. Pat's Psychiatric Hospital yeah. in Dublin. Yeah. What what things were you juggling that it all came to a head? Oh, you know what? Just life. I was living a life that wasn't meant for me. I was sort of trying to fit into sort of South County Dublin life. Uh, you know, the you know everyone kept telling me about my biological clock, which I sort of hadn't really thought about. Um, you know, the pressure was on. I had bought a property that I couldn't afford. I was working four jobs to try and pay for it. Yeah. Um, I was drinking too much. I was burning the candle at two ends and the middle and every other bit I could find to burn. And I just, I just basically just fell apart one day and that was that. What is the uh, keeping up with the South County Dublin life? Well, I guess... Well, a bit like today, you know, everybody's desperate to get on the property ladder. And, you know, back at the time, it was 2005, you know, the buzzword was I'm saving for a deposit. And, you know, I guess that pressure is on as well to settle Mm. down. But in all honesty, I had never really thought about settling down. Like I was still dancing on tables and getting drunk. And we were just coming out of the Chardonnay era into the Pinot Grigio era, (laughs) you know, so I thought we were all very posh. But so is, is it kind of a pressure to look and appear successful? Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, and I think, you know, the pressure's on to get married as well and to have the kids mm. and, you know, the, the, the two holidays a year and the two cars and the semi-D and all of that. But, um, you know, again, you know, it was nearly 20 years ago. So, you know, thankfully life has changed and we all know that there's other ways to live now. Yeah. But back then it was still a little bit... Um, yeah, the pressure was on or maybe it was my own pressure that I was putting myself under. Um, but I was going to ask who was doing it because you're kind of doing it yourself. But it is, it was the environment at the time. It's hard to remember it now, isn't it? Thankfully, yes, it's very hard to remember and I've blocked it out. <laughs> yeah. If you're not rich in 2005, like it's kind of like, what are you doing, you Egypt? They're just handing money out there. They were handing money out. They were doling it out like biscuits and, uh, you know, 100% mortgages. And yeah, people were really getting themselves into financial difficulties. So 2005, so you basically have basically a, like, like a crash before the crash. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I'd like to think that I'm an innovator. What is your, <laughs> I love the dark humour in that one. What is the, um, what was your version of the crash? My version of the crash was uh, drinking too much. Uh, mm. Just, just like I said, burning the candle at both ends and uh, just ended up 
basically just in a heap. And I and I when I say in a heap, I mean in a heap physically, emotionally, mentally, um, basically just just in a very very bad bad place. And um, there was an intervention. Was the people around you helped you? Uh, yeah. Well, you know what? There was uh, a couple of uh, attempts uh, to take my own life and stuff like that. So yeah. you know, it was. Yeah, look, it's again, it's not something that I want to dwell on on the book because no. that's where the story starts. Yes. And it's about moving on from there. So, you know, I get into St. Pat's and I got the fright of my life and I was like, you know what? This is terrible. This is not what I was meant for. I was meant for better things than this. I'm better than this. And that's not to take away from anyone's mental health or anyone who who gets into St. Pat's. I'm talking of course. purely about my story. And it's very, very, um, I need to really stress that, that this is my story and what I did. And what I did to move on and how I've changed and got on with life. So do you, do you remember the day coming out of, of the hospital and <laughs> facing the, the future? And, you know, there must have been a, a sense of hope for you, um, even though those early stages. Again, in the book, I kind of talk about it, you know, so I ran out of the place, to be honest with you. And again, I have to be very careful because some people need that. And yeah. again, I... Well, you needed it as well. Well, no, because what happened was when I got in there, I realised that... I wasn't depressed. I wasn't any of those things that they were trying to sort of diagnose me with. I was just living the wrong life and I was miserable. And I just knew that in order for me to live a better life, I had to do other things that what I was doing wasn't working. So I had to change the record. So in the book, I use the analogy a lot of being a caterpillar and emerging from the cocoon. And, you know, I wanted to be a butterfly. I wanted to soar. I wanted to fly. I wanted to be colourful. I wanted to be myself instead of trying to fit in again to the life that I wasn't mm. meant for. What, what you're um, saying is you didn't have a mental illness per se. No. You would just put all this pressure on yourself. And you yeah, realized. I think it was just burnout. It was just exhaustion. And when I got in there, I, again, for me personally, the treatment plan that was being offered was, I just kind of knew deep down in my gut. And I think this is where I sort of feel I'm lucky. I have a, a good strength of character. And I kind of went, you know what? I actually know what's wrong here. And I'm the only person that can fix it. What's the first thing you change? Oh, everything. I changed my job. I changed my uh-huh. lifestyle. I, I uh, stopped drinking and I decided I'd always, always wanted to work on the cruise ships. And again, I talk about this in my book that as a kid, all I wanted to do was travel. All I used to just hoover up atlases because obviously it was pre-internet. Yeah. And when we got our encyclopedias back then, all I did was read them. I just loved finding out about the natural world, volcanoes and earthquakes. I couldn't get enough of it. And I you were just, excited about life, is oh, what you're saying. I just wanted to see the world. Did you, uh, when you change your lifestyle like that, you stop drinking, you change your job and everything, uh, what what happens with friends? Yeah, friends were kind of, again, I guess, people just naturally drift away or you mm. kind of change. And then I started to, what I did was I actually left the country for a year. So I went off and I worked on the cruise ships, which is a full chapter in the book. And I just had an absolutely amazing time. And it was just one big long party and I just had great fun. And because you're on the cruise ship, it's really safe. You know, you have a bed, mm. you have food, you have a passport. Controlled and environment. Very. But you also get to, you know, every day you're docking somewhere different. Uh, I was yeah, in 40 yeah. countries. Yeah. You know, there was one day I was in Brunei, you know, Taiwan, Japan, Korea. So, you know, it was a dream come true for me to work on the cruise ships. And I presume when you say that it's a party time, it's a different party to the one you were on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I was on a, I was on a love boat, you know, like there's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's you know, the crew life is brilliant. You know, oh, wow. it's, oh, it's okay. really fun. It's really, really fun. Well, it was romance of the high seas, but only oh. probably only on the high seas. <laughs> yeah, kind of only on the high seas. <laughs> but the sailors are terrible. And it's true. It's true what they say about sailors. It's true. All of it. <laughs>
But tell us more about that. <laughs> Hang on, it's too early. Too early in the morning. Um, you, you, so you, you, you made these changes in your life. Uh, what happens after the, the cruise line? You, you, you have to come home and obviously get a solid job, I presume, at some point. Yeah, so when I came home again, I had to deal with, I was quite embarrassed by what had happened. And, you know, even though I had taken a year out of Ireland, you know, you still have to come home and face the music and yeah. people know what you've done. And But, you know, again, I think because I was starting to, to like... We all change, but I think the first thing I really did was accept myself. And I think that's a really big message in the book is that you have to accept yourself where you are. You have to, you know, embrace your uniqueness. You have to embrace your life and you have to find your own purpose and find your own fulfillment. So I adore sport. I love traveling and that's all I ever wanted to do. So I became a fitness instructor and that's I was a fitness instructor on the cruise ships. And then when I came back to Ireland, I completely changed my career. I used to work in bars and nightclubs and I hated it. And um, and then I became a fitness instructor and then I did Pilates and yoga. I became a physio. Yeah, that's and a dramatic change, isn't it? It's yeah, literally one end of the clock to the other, isn't totally. it? Totally. But it was the best thing I ever did. And, you know, it didn't just happen overnight. You know, again, every year, even now, I still do a new course. I would, you know, I've just done diplomas in mental health and wellness coaching. And, you know, I'm always learning. And I think that, you know, developing yourself mentally is is just as important as looking after the physical and for me, the biggest message again is that you're not just a body, you're not just a mind, you are a soul as well. Mm-hmm. And you have to find fulfillment in this life. You know, it's not just about having a house, food, a car, a holiday, children. It's about being happy and satisfied in yourself. It, was it difficult to rebuild your life? Because that's essentially what you were doing in this period. Um, you mentioned that you were embarrassed about what happened. Yeah. Again, we're putting ourselves into kind of the late noughties era where anything to do with mental health episodes yeah. were very shameful. And hopefully that is, it certainly improved. It's not over. But the improvements have made, I think, since then, haven't they? Um, but rebuilding your life, what was that like? Uh, rebuilding my life was good. I mean, obviously, like I said, you know, I was... Uh, you know, it didn't just happen overnight, but I stuck with it. And I think, again, that's really what comes through the book is that I never give up and I have great tenacity and determination. And when I set my goal, when I set my sights on a goal, I will do everything to get it. Right. I'll crawl on my hands and feet, if I on my hands and knees if I need to. I just won't give up. Was it doesn't it, occur to me to give up. Was it lonely at times? Because I presume the friends from the old parties were gone because they, they, people we know from parties don't tend to be your friends, let's face it. No, so that's where the cycling came in. And in 2010, I joined a cycling club and it was the best thing I have ever, ever done. And I didn't join the cycling club for fitness because I was already pretty fit. Yeah. I actually joined it for the social element and it opened up a whole new world for me. And that's, again, really featured in the book because cycling is a great sport. There's events on all over Ireland. And then I started having weekends away with my cycling club and we'd go off and, you know, we'd do the Ring of Kerry or, you know, the um, the Tour of Clare was just on this weekend and things like that. Yeah. And then I started going abroad. And again, there's a chapter in the book about going off to France and I was completely unprepared. And I arrived in France to do some of the Tour de France climbs. And I was, oh, wow. but, <laughs> you know, again, I and struggled. Even fitness. Yeah, 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 but I struggled up them. And again, there's a whole chapter in the book about you know what I did to get up each hill you know and I just you know was talking to myself or telling myself you know keep going you got this counting poles on the side of the road anything to get me up that hill Is it a social thing cycling because obviously once you're on the bike you can't um... 
Oh yeah, no, it is. I and mean, you know, we always stop for coffee and cake. And oh, again, yes. that's where I oh, am. That's, I, that's good. Sorry. You know, stopping I, for cake now is oh, yeah, it's different. You know, it doesn't matter if the coffee shop's a hundred miles away. We'll cycle to it, and then we'll eat our body weight in cake, and then cycle home. So, did uh, romance come from any of your your social exercising regimes? You're winking at me now. Uh, no. <laughs> That's just to say that. <laughs> um, I did have a big romance. Um, uh, I can't remember when, actually. Again, I'd have to... Uh, 20, I don't know, 15, 14, 15, there was a big romance. Uh, and again, it didn't go uh, according to plan. Yes. And um, again, I talk about that in the book because when you sort of give too much of yourself to somebody else, again, it's just going to lead to hardship. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't a level playing field. And I think this is where a lot of us can see ourselves in relationships. One person is, I used to say, you know, I was always pulling the cart and the other person was sitting in the back having a free ride. Uh, and, you know, and, and I'm sure they would tell a very different story because there is two sides to every story. Course. But it did, it ended and I was heartbroken. And, uh, but again, I I said to myself, no, you know what, you got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off. I love journaling. I find journaling great. Uh, I would go and talk to people. I've no problems, you know, going to life coaches. I love life coaching and yeah. I became a life coach because I believe in it so much. But I also uh, decided there and then that, you know what, the best thing for me is just to go away, gather my thoughts. And I headed off to Myanmar and Cambodia for a month and I had the time of my life. Sinead, you have fantastic outlets and ideas to um, move on from things all the time. It's really important that you know where your happy place is. And for me, my happy place is traveling solo because uh, it's never lonely. And the best thing about it for me is that I always do a life audit when I'm on the plane. You know, you have a 14 hour flight and I'll sit down and I'll, you know, I'll do like a an annual audit with myself and appraisal like you would have in work, <laughs> for instance. And, you know, I'll, I will ask myself the hard questions, you know, am I happy? Do I like what I'm doing? Do I like where I'm going? What, where do I want to be this time next year? You know, yeah, we don't, we don't ask the ourselves these questions. We don't. And that's why I, I'm a huge advocate of life coaching because a life coach will ask those questions for you and it mm. gives you the space and time to really think about those answers. Is it is one of the questions, you know, the, the presumption that we have out there that you that everyone needs somebody and you need to be in a relationship. And there's, it's probably annoying when the likes of me ask you, you know, is there somebody there to get a romance? Well, I did in the past. No, I haven't had any yeah. romance the last number of years and, and I'm very happy to, yeah. to be so on my own. You don't need someone as the... As I don't you. need somebody. But if I meet somebody, it will be the icing on the cake, but yeah. it won't be the cake. It's not essential. Oh, far from it, no. So you went off on your your trips. Um, like It's hard to ask the highlights because you've been everywhere, haven't you? I have, uh, more or less. But, but there must be ones that kind of stand out as really special to you. Really special. Um so Bolivia was my first real solo trip on my own. I was going down to Sydney in Australia to meet a friend for uh, New Year's Eve. So I decided to go via South America, as you do. And I had five weeks uh, in total. So I went to Peru, Bolivia and Chile. And Bolivia was just incredible. It was 2010. And uh, it's a real outpost. It's a yeah. lot of deserts, a lot of outdoorsy stuff. It's um, a brave holiday, I would say. I, do you know what? It, it's just so outdoorsy. I loved it, you know, and uh, went to the Salerno Union which is the Salt Plains, oh, did yeah, a three-day yeah. safari kind of in a jeep and, you know, went to these thermal springs and, you know, saw flamingos in lakes and things. Like, it was just like all my encyclopedias had come together. <laughs> 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 and then um, I also, you know, I've been to the Himalayas, I've been to Everest Base Camp and that was a tough, tough trip. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, I made, I always meet friends along the way, uh, you know, and... 
I met a lovely Thai guy on that trip and actually I just met him in Bangkok there for dinner recently at Christmas time. And uh, I know that's the great thing about social media and WhatsApp and you Facebook. You connect to these people you've met all around the world. Yeah, yeah. You seem to have someone who's brim- you're brimming with confidence, you talk easy to people. What if someone likes wants to travel on their own but they don't have the same confidence? Would you have any tips for them? Well, actually, yeah, because what I do is I mentor people to help them to travel oh, solo okay. and I'll help them with their confidence issues and, you know, help them plan their trips so that they feel more safe. But, you know, the the biggest thing I would say is if you're really, really nervous is do book a trip with like a tour, but go on your own so that you have other people there. There's a tour guide, you're met at the airport and then you also can have your own bedroom so that you have that time out. Uh, Particularly, you know, like I'm 50 now, you know, I want my own bedroom. I, you know, I'm over it. Yeah, Yeah. you know, I used (laughs) to throw myself into dorms and stuff and it's brilliant um, and it's a great way to meet people. But if you're on a tour, you have the safety and comfort of somebody holding your hand, but you also have your own time and space. If you were to give one, just one tip to your younger self who is falling off, you know, and you're very honest about your age. People are very weird about their age, aren't they? Oh, I don't care. (laughs) Uh, What would you say to your younger self, Sinead Kennedy? Um, Well, actually, I've said it in the book, you know, that I would love to go back to that girl in 2005 and, you know, put my arm around her and tell her that, you know, you turn out to be the hero of your own story and that it's okay, it all works out and, you know, Everything you want in life is there. You just have to reach out and get it yourself. And, you know, people might think listening to me that I'm very, very lucky. I'm not. I created all, all, you know, everything I have done, I created myself. You battled and worked. I battled and I got on with it. But not only that, if I can do it, anyone can. I'm nothing special. I'm not an Olympian. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just me. And, you know... I'm five foot three. I'm small. <laughs> you know, I'm just a little thing and I have a bike. Don't be doing just, yourself down. And you no, know you don't, but, but you're, yeah, you're bright but, you know, and beaming. But I'm just, and I'm just us, me. I'm not, yeah, any, yeah, you know, I'm not some great. major thing with, with special ingredients. I'm not, it's just me. You're giving us a great story. Uh, Life is a Cycle is called the book. You may have mentioned it uh, along the way there. And it's self-published where people can get it. Yeah, on my website. website so yeah. SineadEKennedy.com and uh, you can get it worldwide delivery as well. Quite a lot of the, the cycling shops have it as well. So Cycle Superstore, Joe You know Daly's. all the cycling All the cycling, all the cycling shops. shops have been Joe so Daly's, supportive. Joe Daly's, Hannah's in Dublin, Think Bike Dublin, but SineadEKennedy.com yeah. is probably the easiest of them all. Yeah, and I'll deliver it, post it straight to Listen, you. Continue to enjoy yourself and your travels, Sinead Kennedy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Oliver. Good morning. 51551, that's the text back after these. Now, I want to go to the phones. Joe Falvey is on the line this morning, remembering Sinead as well. Good morning to you, Joe. You were one of Sinead O'Connor's former teachers, isn't that right, down in Waterford? Yes, I spent my career teaching in Newtown School. I spent 37 years there, and I Sinead came in 1983. Mm-hmm. She was there until 1985. And during that period, we've had a very interesting insight into Sinead there, and that was the young lady young woman, teenager um, that I met in the mid-80s. She uh, radiated beauty in spirit uh, as well in features. And, you know, the two of us struck it off, I as teacher, by the nature of a, a co-ed boarding school. You know, the teachers would be there mm-hmm. in the evening uh, at downtime supervising meals, supervising prep. So uh, I got to know Sinead then. She was in my class. And yes, very, and you really, you hit it off, Joe. To deal with. But 
I began to she be I began to come across her increasingly with her guitar uh-huh. as a sixteen year old, you know, playing yeah. on footsteps or a bench around the school and it went on from there. And you noticed her talent straight away. When she was strumming guitar oh, absolutely. you went up to her. Yes, yeah, she was there kind of just strumming with her friends and I remember our first conversation outside of class kind of saying, um, whose song is that? I don't recognise it. And she said, that's mine. I wrote it. And then she um, played other um, stuff for me. And what struck me day one, day two, day three, day 100 was for a 16, 17-year-old writing the way she was writing, mm. the insightful, the maturity, the passion, you know, yeah. there was something uh, um, um, special about her. Um, I was... said to her, would you be interested in playing outside school, you know, to uh, sort of play to an audience? And in Waterford, uh, very old, it's closed now, unfortunately, hopefully it'll open again. Yeah. A, a pub that was a very old pub in Waterford called T&H Doolan's. And it was a centre for, you know, the music heads and uh, trad heads. Um, Liam Clancy owns the pub at one stage. So there was a, a folk and arts club there, and I knew some of the guys. And I said, look, uh, there's a young one up in school. She needs, I, I think she's very talented. Would you give her a slot? Yeah. And they said, uh, no problem. If you think she's good, fair enough. So I got permission uh, for her to, uh, you know, to miss evening study, and I brought her down to um, Teen H. And, and she's only sixteen or seventeen at this stage. The story himself since the main act that night was Dominic Mulvaney. I think he's uh, he's uh, he's a Greystones um, bass folk singer. And anyway. Um, um, Sinead went up uh, to do her th- uh, uh, to begin. I was sitting at the counter with um, um, and Dominic Mulvaney and other people looking at their points, this young one, 16-year-old. And then she started. It was the most memorable moment in my life. Wow. Everybody turned around. I said, what in the name of God is that the power from this young slim uh, girl Mm. Uh, and it was a shattering moment Uh, she I had heard her you know singing gently around the school this was power yeah Uh, and um, Dominic Balvani the main act that night sitting (laughs) alongside me turned around and said how the F am I supposed to follow that? <laughs> well, he'd no hope. He'd no hope against yeah. that. Uh, and uh, she became the main act for the, uh, the, uh, the night. It was incredible. Yeah. And um, um, D- D- Dominic has got uh, many good nights out of that because he I'd has say. told yeah, that yeah. story yeah. Uh, himself. Well, it's a fantastic but, story, uh, Joe. And, so um, that was that um, uh, moment. But again, uh, that night and other occasions, it was the uh, sophistication, the mm. maturity of the level of lyrics she was writing and singing with an incredible belief and passion. So it was there from the very beginning. She was only 16 or 17 uh, at that stage, Joe. it was an amazing moment that Joe, Lord was live with me. Yeah, Joe, she was only 16 or 17 at that stage. Did you follow her yes. then over the years? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, she approached me then. She wanted to enter a song in the competition. You know, we've talked a lot, and uh, uh, and at one stage, um, uh, to, to, um, I brought her. Um, she wanted to get um, some music scripted, and I said the way to do it nowadays is to make a demo. So there was friends of mine had a recording studio. Brian O'Reilly, loudest whisper. There, he had a studio in Floy. So I brought her and another pupil, Jeremy Maber, mm-hmm. and I brought the, the the two of them up to him yeah. in Fiona's studio for three hours, and that was another eye opener. We were there three hours. My brother came up from Cork to do keyboards, and. Uh, your man that was in the music business, Brian O'Reilly, and has written musicals and all that kind of stuff. And here Sinead, the 16, 17-year-old, was telling him I, she had three songs selected. And uh, she says uh, she was act, she was acting producer. She says it's all thought out. Yeah. Can I double track this? Can I have this effect? Can I have that effect? Mm-hmm. We were mesmerized. Uh, whatever about me, the semi-amateur or our total amateur, but Brian O'Reilly was gobsmacked. Uh, you still have our first demo, I believe, Joe. And then from that recording, um, the, uh, on the old um, spool tape, uh, that was done and Brian on the night uh, gave us two cassette copies of that uh, plus the original master tape. Now, I still have it. I'm sitting here at home with that original master tape in my hand, which Sinead gave me when she was leaving school. She says, "Uh, that's for you. She left her hand. Also, when she was leaving school, she gave me a a, a collection of William Butler Yeats, The Secret Rose and other um, uh, stories um, as a gift uh, to Joseph for being so helpful with lots of love, um, Sinead. So off she went uh, and uh, uh, with that cassette tape uh, um, and uh, demo and she used that uh, to get entrees to uh, a recording company who said, wow, uh, this girl is worth travelling. They travelled over from Ireland, you know, to hear her uh, and so on. So... Um, the other fine because uh, I have to go shortly Um, then I heard nothing for about uh, a a year and a half I knew she was in London and then the postman arrived one day Mm -hmm. with her first album um, The The Lion Lion and the the Cobra Cobra. yeah Yeah. and uh, um, she sent that that, uh, to me to Joe I have it in my hands to Joe with many thanks, love Sinead and her and her phone number. So we stayed uh, in contact, mm. you know, for the uh, you know for the beginning years, and then every so often over subsequent years, she'd ring me up and she'd say, "Look, so and so is doing a biography. Are you happy? Are you happy to be interviewed?" <sighs> so uh, um, uh, she was. Uh, very special person uh, uh, in uh, my life, yeah. uh, having uh, met her and we struck up this rapport between. Now, she left school before her leaving. Yes. And I sat down with her as her teacher, as a, as one of her teachers, and I said, look, she needs it's only another two months to go for leaving, sir. 
um, why don't you see it through? Because uh, increasingly she was not coming back after the weekends when she got home to Dublin for the weekend. Yeah. And she said, look, the leaving search is irrelevant to me. Music is going to be my life, uh, whatever. Uh, but I said, can't you do it anyway? And it can still be your life. No. And uh, she says, I emotionally have moved on. Yeah. I uh, uh, want to devote my life uh, to music. It was all about music. What she, she did with her ups and downs. But uh, at the speakers that was on before me, uh, the same, uh, this powerful, this powerful spirit. Uh, it was, uh, 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 she was so pure. She was, uh, uh, um, she was so genuine and so real. Mm. There's no compromising. No. Uh, 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 and I was always uh, proud of her. And I was very pleased that when she did her biography, uh, I'm the only teacher she mentioned yeah, in her right. biography. It, so, it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, and thank you so much, uh, Joe, for, for sharing. To, to the end, yeah. uh, 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 um, uh, um, <coughs> We stayed loyal to each other. Oh, you did. And it's so beautifully told at uh, the connection that you had and how important she was in your life. And we can we know how important you, Joe Falvey, were in her life. And she did indeed mention uh, Joe Falvey in the memoir. She's the only teacher from that time. And she mentioned him again on social media and um, because she, she never looked back when she went from school and they stayed in touch. And it's beautiful. I know we have to let Joe go there in Waterford, but Newtown School in Waterford um, is where he was the former teacher in the 80s. And there's another message coming in. Oliver, my mum Lillian Russell taught Sinead music at the same school like Joe Falvey. My mum always said she was very, very talented. May she rest in peace. Her untimely death is so terribly sad, says Sandra Graham. We're getting loads and loads of messages. I'll, I'll just get to one before we, before we have to take a quick break. A, a dark cloud hangs over Ireland this late July morning. Wildly eccentric, some would say, but courageous and a truly remarkable talent. Her golden, evocative, interpretive voice beguiled us all. Just heard Lay Your Head Down from 2001 with the RT Concert Orchestra. And I urge anyone who hasn't heard it to play it. It evokes all that was best in her, says John. God help us. Sinead O'Connor, born in 1966. And a part of her story has come to an end, but not the music. Uh, never the music. Uh, this is from the, the late 90s. Again, it was the end credits of In the Name of the Father, the Jim Sheridan story. You made me the thief of my heart. Five one. 551 is the text this morning. Yesterday afternoon, Cork City regained one of its most famous uh, landmark shops nearly a, a century after the original opening, Crowley's Music Centre. It relaunched yesterday. It's in a new location in the South Parish in Cork City. And joining us to tell us more about this amazing story, Sheena Crowley, good morning to you. 
Good morning, Oliver. How are I, you? You are Crowley of the Crowleys. Yes. <laughs> how, first of all, we want to begin, how famous has this shop been down in Cork City? For those of us who may not have been familiar with it, think of an alien arriving down or a worm come to life. Yeah. He's arriving in Cork City. It's a, it's a legendary place uh, for, for the rebels down there. It is, for sure, yeah. I mean, we, we grew up with it. Everybody coming into the shop was a weekly visit, for sure. Yeah. Maybe even more than that, you know. So it was um, part of the rituals of the week. So um, it means a lot, you know, what? and last night you could see that when I was chatting to everybody at the launch and they were telling me all their stories as well, you know. What's your earliest memory of going into the shop? Um, my grandfather set up a shop on Merchant's Quay at first mm-hmm. and when I was uh, about maybe, I can remember being in there at three or four years of age, yeah. I remember my dad holding my hand and I, I remember it quite distinctly. And I think my father then moved it to McCurtain Street when I was about, say, six or seven. Uh, so that would have been 1973. Yeah. Yeah. What did it look like? Can you just bring us into your, your memories of the shop uh, growing up and what, what it physically looked like as you walked in through the door? Um, well, the small shop on Merchant's Key, which my grandfather had set up, was mm. a l- tiny little uh, space, just completely packed with instruments hanging from the ceilings and uh, drum kits up high even and because there was nowhere to put the kits on the floor. Um, and there was a little walking gangway above the counter where there was a man living in an apartment above and he used to kind of appear upstairs, <laughs> from upstairs. Yeah, it was very weird. And there was just this counter where my aunt would have been and um, a lot of the musicians would just come in and try anything. And they used to, uh, my father used to give them instruments to go busking to kind of maybe um, get make a bit of money if they were broke or stuck or whatever, you know. Um, but in McCurtain Street, it was a bigger, much bigger shop. My father was very much um, focused on rock at that point. And yes. uh, so we were getting all the latest amps and electric uh-huh. guitars and it was very, very cool. <laughs> and he was also into disco as well in <laughs> the 70s, you know. So uh, myself and my sisters and brothers used to be brought into the shop for a night uh, or a night like treat um, going into the basement of the shop and he would put on the projections with all the different lights and effects and wow. that on the wall downstairs, yeah. Uh, it was a magical place, really. Um uh, like I always identify musicians, I can spot them everywhere, no matter where I travel. I can say he's a musician, she's a musician. You know, I can feel it or see it. I don't know That's because I, yeah, you can't quite tell yeah. exactly why, but you just know. Yeah, because I grew up with them, you know, so they right. were like part of my existence. So, um, and then like my dad used to bring me into the shop all the time, so mm. I used to get to chat with them as well. And they have a flair, like they often have. Uh, style too, a lot, a fairly, I think, cool style, you know, so. Uh, and so the, the, the second phase, your dad, Michael, is really the second era of the, of yeah, the shop. Yeah. So if you, I, I want to just jump back slightly into Tyg mm-hmm. Crowley, yeah. your grandfather, and how he got into it, how he how he started and, and why this shop even came into being. Yeah, um, well, he was a pipe major and a composer of music, mm. um, some amazing pieces, actually. And he started making instruments as well. But what used to happen um, is somebody, um, he was very concerned with preserving um, the abilities, uh, like the Irish tradition and ability to play the pipes, etc. Yeah. So he'd often hear maybe that a pipe band had um, lost their members or something like that. So he used to try and revive the different bands and he'd travel around Munster, he used to walk by foot 
to different places like Foynes and so on, Newcastle West, and he'd get there whenever, how long it used to take him, and he'd then stay there for a week in the pipe major's home, and then he'd all the people in the village used to bring their instruments to him to repair. Wow. So he made it his business to be able to repair all instruments so that nobody then fades away from it, you know. So it was an absolute passion to him. So that in 1923, he started making pipes and uh, repairing from a shed in Blackpool. And then he uh, was aiming for a shop. So it took him 10 years to actually get to open the shop. It's like it took me 10 years to revive Crowley's. But yeah. um, So he opened a shop on 10 Merchants Quay. And he was uh, focused on uh, piping and Kaylee equipment, you know, so. So that, that's, that was the first phase of it. Yeah. And then uh, years later, your dad kind of takes over. Yeah, my grandfather died in 1951. My father uh-huh. was 10. And oh, wow. um, yeah, he then was literally skipping school, going into the shop all the time. And my grandmother was worried about that, of course, but he just kept leaving school. And um, eventually she stopped trying to uh, resist that. Like, <laughs> And he, by the time he was 14 years of age, he was fully running the shop. Really? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's incredible, isn't I it? I know, a 14-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes look at young kids and I think, geez, imagine oh, like the... like. Uh, he just took to it like you know it was his mm. it was his home really he yeah. saw that as his home because it was his he believed that's where his father's spirit was you know so and it being a music shop he wasn't exactly running it as a as an amazing business definitely not <laughs> <laughs> it's not like capitalism or consumerism no. it's none of those things it's yeah. just all about passion and really wanting to help and facilitate them any musician at all um there's a pair of uh amazing uh, musicians that were well known in Cork called the Dunn Brothers mm-hmm. um, and they used to come into the shop and uh, if they were stuck for something like a banjo or violin uh, Mick would give it to them and then they'd um, go outside Roche stores busking and then they'd come back and give them half of the takings and <laughs> they did this regularly until the instrument was paid off so they became very well known because they constantly went busking then uh, they were outstanding musicians. Yeah. That's extraordinary. And mm-hmm. he would have been involved in helping out uh, in the show band era. Yeah, and, big and time. The, that's a great story, isn't there, to do with the Royal Show Band and the guitar they ordered. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Jim Condon had ordered a Strat. I mean, at that point, there hadn't really been many had come into the... Like nowadays, young people would see it as like a common enough instrument, but they mm. were very rare back then. Mm-hmm. And... Jim Con- Jim Conlon had ordered one, but it came in in the wrong colour. came in in the sunburst colour, but uh, that didn't suit the uniform. And they were very much about their whole image um, in those days, which was brilliant. It all had to match. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, he traded back into the shop and Rory Gallagher's eagle eyes spotted it. And he was already well aware of the Strat, you know. Yeah. And it, like, it, it was like it was drawing him like... And he had to have it, so he contacted, or he got his mom to come into the shop, and they made an arrangement then with my dad to pay it off. I think it was over a year. I, I can't remember exactly. It but took it a year was, to pay off. Yeah, the guitar, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And obviously, this guitar because it's extremely important for Rory Gallagher's career. Yeah, uh, yeah, big time. You know, um, I think sometimes when you're watching musicians and you see how much you know the way you'd say something like they're one with the instrument. I, I think Rory Gallagher came alive 
obviously everybody would have said that like but it was like apart from for sure and he was in it like and maybe like Miles McGopoline and you know that story about the postman becoming part of the saddle on the bike I think <laughs> Rory Gallagher was definitely <laughs> mingling with the strat like you know at swim three boys uh, uh, and um, Rory Gallagher together yeah um, your dad obviously was really beloved in the music scene yeah yeah he was an amazing man actually like I would like him, him to Rory Gallagher and their personality. They were very um, chilled out, very humble, very unassuming uh, and kind of shy. But um, my dad, like, yeah, he, he, the thing is, he used to, right, he had six children and his, my mom, <laughs> uh, but he'd get a call anytime, anywhere. Um, I'm stuck, my speaker has uh, broken down or my amp or whatever. So he'd travel, like he'd, he, it was like he was on call. I was saying to somebody the other day, it was like an emergency service yeah, at home, yeah. you know. And uh, our, our sitting room space was covered in gear that he'd be fixing for people. And my mother was always going, you need to get a shed, you need to move this stuff, you know. But um, they, the show bands especially really, really respected the fact that he would do that for them. And so, you know, they always knew they could count on him. And the thing about him as well is I suppose he built up relationships like they were his extended family because at 14 years of age, you know, mm. he's getting to know all these people and he's growing with them and he observes them and how they develop as well. So it was just part of him and they all loved him, right, for sure. And he kept going, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like he was working there for 55 years Amazing. And his day off was Tuesday, but he almost never, he, every single Tuesday he used to come into the shop. We used to laugh because <laughs> we'd be there like um, taking care of things and he'd just say, I thought I'd just come in and have a look. Is everything OK? Yeah, everything's OK, but he'd still stay, you know, because uh, he just loved being there. He loved being busy. Um, yeah. it, it survived even through the 80s and the recession era and all of that. But yeah, it's funny because in the recession era, I remember many uh, people coming in and saying, I've lost my job and mm. I need to do something. And my dad would give them a guitar and say, look, uh, get a, you know, a gig in a pub or something. Yeah. And so we actually boomed at that point. Really? You know, yeah. So those, those grim years in the 80s. Yeah, were actually uh, our best years, like, ironically, like, you know. Yeah. So then he was helping freaking everyone, you know. So yeah. <laughs> and uh, Again, I the remember, business mind wasn't Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wasn't but chicken. he did, one thing he did say, all right, is, don't play for pints, don't do that and don't play for pittance. And, ah, you know, he'd be trying to say that to them. And yeah. at one stage he tried to set up a kind of um, a club for musicians and, you know, try to get them, make sure that they were all sorted and took care of their gear and that, but mm. that faded away. But uh, yeah, he was brilliant. Um, and he, brilliant. he sadly died in 2010. Yeah, yeah. And um, then the, the shop kind of... Uh, went into its hiatus. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, there's loads of love, actually, for the show, um, uh, for the shop, sorry. My 26-year-old son, Aaron, got his first guitar there and is a fantastic guitarist now. Going to Crowley's to get uh, even a guitar string was like going to Smith's toy shop for him. So oh, yeah. many happy afternoons trying out every guitar in the shop and Crowley's have always encouraged it. Legends in Cork, says Trish there. Uh, someone says, my parents used to go to Crowley's. One day my mum was standing beside Rory Gallagher checking out the guitars. It's her claim to fame <laughs> and we think it was street cred high, says Maeve. So it really was, the, it was a hangout spot, wasn't it? And uh, yeah. uh, they're, they're the kind of people that might have driven other people mad in, in music shops. The, the hangers out and the uh, uh, tyre kickers in a music shop. But it sounds like your dad had a welcome for them. 
and uh, brilliant, great to have more bricks and mortar music shops in Ireland. As a musician, I always try to buy from a real music shop, not online, unless they don't have what I need. Same with the vinyl and the CDs. And there's a shout out for Plugged Records in Cork City as well, part of the scene as well. Yeah. And brilliant to see Crowley's opening again, a hugely important part of Cork's musical life for decades. And that's the story, Sheena, isn't it? The fact that it's come back uh, into existence as well. After it closed in 2013, you, you kept it going somewhat, didn't you? In, well, a, in a sort of um, yeah, a phantom guise. Yeah, well, I, I was always doing, I'm still involved all the time. and But especially during COVID, I noticed a lot of people were ringing me, asking me would I have a lend of a cello or a lend of a saxophone or a lend of something because they all turned to recording when they couldn't gig yeah. And so um, I was trying to kind of source them for them. And then I just started saving a bit of money here and there every week and buying an instrument. Mm. And I kind of built up a bank of instruments then. So, so I was renting them out to people. Wow. And and I did it then to honour my dad because I was charging 25 euros per month um, mm. to rent the instruments for the month. And everybody would say, you're mad, you should charge a lot more than that. And I was saying, yeah, no, yeah. no, because I want to do it um, to honour my father. Yeah. You know, it and, was and what it was it, about. Yeah. yeah. Like support and help them in that. But um, what you said there about um, the, what the um, re, uh, the person who texted in, mm-hmm. um, about it being a shop uh, rather than online, a bricks and mortar shop. Yeah. I think it's very important because... Um, it's a very sociable thing. You know, we're all maybe at home and on our computer, on social media, and uh, we're communicating online as well. And um, like last night, I observed it like, and if even, I don't know if you know of John Bleck, you probably should anyway, he's okay. brilliant. And uh, Ari Sheehan, and they were saying, geez, I, I was great now, we're going to meet now after a meeting here, we've decided to get together and things like that, you know, they'll always happen and they begin to collaborate. Yes. And uh, that's definitely something that works for musicians. So our space is going to be a sociable space. There's benches where they can sit, there will be coffee and all that kind of stuff, you know. I mean, it's so important, like you're saying, to, to go in and chat to people because you can only do so much fishing around online. Yeah, you're sort of doing it yeah, on your own. Yeah. It's the chats that people have. Yeah, connecting with people is what music is about. You know, that's exactly what it's about. So yeah. to do it physically is much better. <laughs> I want to go to the phones, uh, actually, Sheena, because we have a man on the line, Ray Cooney's in, uh, I think he's Clonakilty. Good morning to you, Ray Cooney. Hello, Oliver. How are you doing? Um, and you have, a, you have a, a deep connection, don't you, with Crowley's? I do, I do. Um, I have a very fond, very fond memory of Crowley's shop on McCurtain Street. Um, I always wanted, I lie, I didn't always want, for for about a year before I got the guitar, I wanted wanted a guitar. Yeah. And I pestered my father and it was De La Salle Day in sixth class and we had had to go to Mass. And he promised me he'd bring me into Cork um, to buy a guitar after the Mass. So off we went. He invited his friend, Mark Kelleher, oh. who is um, a traditional musician. And the three of us drove into Crowley's. I don't think I'd ever been to Crowley's before that moment. And we went in and I, it was just mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, I can remember a long, a kind of squarish, high-ceilinged place. That's my memory of it. Just guitars. I had no interest in anything else, like the drums or the saxophones or anything like that. It was the guitars, you know, it's just the guitars. I'd never seen so many guitars. <laughs> and the, the the electrics were so exotic too, like the electric guitars were so exotic. I, I didn't dare look at them really. But um, I can remember Mert trying out a Horner acoustic on his knee. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm just looking at him going, is that for me? <laughs> and um, so we bought it and I still have it. I was playing it yesterday. Um, and it's just very special memory. Mart is a good friend still. Uh, my dad is in his 70s, as is Mart. And um, I pestered my father again in leaving cert. <laughs> And There's a lot got, of festering, um, a, lot of, a lot of bribing going on. You had to go to another yeah, mass. To yeah, do... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I got I got a Les Paul um, for my leaving cert, which I still have, wow. and nobody's allowed to borrow. <laughs> but it all started with Crowley's. Um, and I must shout out, I must give a quick shout out to my teacher, Pat, Pat Walsh, who taught me guitar for free for two years in school. Wow. I wouldn't be able to play without him. But um, yeah, so that's my story about Crowley's. Um, it was... I don't know, I would say, I, I think a lot of people were kind of grieving after it left mm. in McCartan Street. It was mm. it was a strange time. I, I, I'm a teacher and I slagged the young fellas about this burger joint. You know that burger joint there on McCartan Street, <laughs> I said to them. And they say, yeah, <laughs> ah, burger joints. Yeah. I said, there's burger joints everywhere. There was one place there, I said, lads, before that burger joint. They've no memory of it. Of course, they don't. They're too young. And I go, it was a very special place, very, very special place. And it was so exciting. And um, another joke I make is um, the cost of not making it in rock is teaching. (laughs) (laughs) And the agony, no, there's an agony. Honest to God, there's an agony. And I can relate to what that lady was saying. There's an agony about not making it in music. But music is so infectious, you know. And making it is is such an undefined meaning, Ray Cooney, isn't it? I it mean, is, it is, yeah. yeah. I feel I've made it because I have music and I have a yeah. daughter and I'm trying to teach her music. Oh, so, but, uh, but Crowley's has a part to play in that, I think, and I, I'm sure it's the case for thousands of people around Cork and around Ireland, not just me, you know. Sheena, that's a gorgeous story. Isn't it? It that's is lovely. Thing yeah, yeah, I love it. I, every time I hear the stories, there are people connected to my dad, especially or anybody in the shop. Um, we had great staff mm. there as well. You see, so that was all part of it. You know that um, everybody felt very welcome, and somebody like people will always say it didn't matter whether you were a high profile musician or whether you were just a beginner learning. It was you were as important. You know so. Mm. Um, I think mm. it was my father just seemed to be able to give everybody time and I used to be saying you need to go to the bank or you need to do this and he'd go no no I'm chatting to whatever you know <laughs> yeah. so yeah. everything had to wait for you know to be yeah. with that customer like so and then that was fantastic you know That's a, uh, yeah. his yeah. priority were the people like and mm. to find them the exact instrument that they needed like so when music, when instruments came into the shop you know when we got deliveries he'd open up the boxes of guitars say and he'd go through them and he'd run his eye over the um, action and the different aspects of the build of the guitar and he'd touch and he'd smell it and everything and he'd get a feel for it and then he'd go I'm going to give Andy Dunn a shout he'd like this guitar you know and yeah Mm. and it literally would be matched you know Andy would come in try the guitar and Jesus Mick that's perfect thanks a million you know Uh, and that happened all the time he just got he had a feel for it like you know and Mm -hmm. uh, so when you were that invested in people you know that's why it was so magical, I would say, mm. really. A really special place. Ray, thanks a million for sharing your memories. Yeah, thanks, and Ray. And, uh, thank you, thanks very much. Thank, thank you. See you soon, hopefully. Yeah, enjoy your yeah. Honor acoustic. And don't forget, yeah. it's, it's, the, <laughs> it's the agony that keeps you playing. Don't yeah. forget, that's yeah. the thing. That's what you can draw on. Good morning. Yeah. Thanks a million. Yeah. Um, Sheen, I want to ask you, because last night you had your official opening. Yes. And yeah. um, what's, the new, what's the new shop like and, and where exactly is it? Where can people it's find it? It's lovely. It's, I, I'm actually right on the outskirts of the city. So, oh. like, literally, you walk down two lanes and 
and you're onto the South Mall kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm in an ideal position. And, but the lovely feel there because it's a residential street, you know, and all the neighbours are coming in to say hello as we were building and doing all the work. Oh, lovely. And it was really nice. And it's a small space, so I would liken it more to Merchant's Quay than McCurtain Street. So at the moment we will be selling... Um, well, for for the near future, we'll be selling second-hand instruments and kind of middle-of-the-road vintage instruments. And then I will focus on new instruments for traditional players first and folk players and then build from there. Um, and I'll have a lot... I'll, I'll do a lot of accessories so that, you know, people can just pop in and get their strings and their cables and stuff like that. But uh, it's just a lovely warm space. It's just class. It's class. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's going to be a lovely, it's going to be a hub, isn't it, for lessons yeah. and various things. That's, yeah. what your, that's what your ambitions are for the place. Exactly, because I'm going to do it part time and focus the all the cons- customers at the weekends, you know, from Thursdays to Sundays, 12 to 6. Now that will probably evolve, obviously, and that. But the, there's other spaces in the shop that I will use for things like podcasts and recording and teaching rooms and so on. Um, basically, what anybody needs, we'll have workshops and gigs and so on as well. Oh, well, it's just it's lovely news, and there's loads of messages coming into them. I'll get to them later on, but for yeah. the, uh, in the meantime, uh, the, the best of luck to you on Friar Street there Thank you very in, much. in the South Parish. People will know it down Cork City Way, but we'll find them uh, Crowley's or Crowley's. I never know when it comes to Cork. I don't mind. <laughs> it's okay, it's cool. I get called everything <laughs> we but know Sheena or it. Sheila yes. or Crowley or Crowley. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Can well, I just say one thing? Of before course, I please go, do, actually, please do. Sorry, we're doing a tribute night to my father in um, the Triscoll next Friday on the 4th at 8pm. Uh-huh. We're going to have two brilliant acts. One is um, Conor O'Sullivan, Carl Nesbeth and Jason Turk called No Name Trio. And there'll be uh, also David Munley and uh, Shane McGowan. They're coming from uh, Mayo and Sligo. Uh-huh. Um, so we're going to do a series of gigs, especially dedicated to my father to kind of uh, honour his... Um, dedication like he's 55 years working for musicians wow. and uh, so that's next Friday so I'd love to see all his friends there That sounds like a great night out and a, yeah, a lovely way and you've, you've honoured uh, both Tig and your dad Michael yeah. extremely well Sheena yeah. good morning to you Thanks, Thanks a million, million.